Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Have you ever uh, had a near-death experience? Like not one of the clinical ones where maybe you have like, I think officially an NDE, a near-death experience, is the term they use for someone who died and were pronounced dead and they came back to life on the table kind of thing. Anybody ever heard of that before? If you've ever had that, can you talk to me? That is uber interesting and I want to hear about it. But that's not, that's not the NDE, a near-death experience. Like, have you ever had a close call, a brush with your own mortality? Like, Tim, I see you. You've had a couple. I was following you on a trail one time. <laughs> and you, like, went under it. Man, that was close. You ever had a moment, though, where it's like you were just brought into the utter realization of your own finite mortality? And, like, that there are powers in this world and there are forces in this world that could swallow you whole. You ever had a moment like that? It just brings you back. It's, there's nothing more sobering and resetting than like a near-death experience. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like talk to, I remember talking to uh, Pastor Adam's brother, Nathan, and he was attacked by a bear one time. Ask him about it. If you know him, you will see the blood drain from his body and his eyes go like this the moment he starts telling that story. It's like complete reset, you know? I remember one time I was hiking a mountain in South Carolina with uh, some campers and a group of friends, and we were, uh, we were up there, and, and a guy went over the edge, and he li- literally caught a ledge before he fell to 400 feet death. And he pulled himself up on the ledge, and then we waited all day long for a rescue team to come and you know, go down on the ropes and bring him up. And we hiked back down. And I remember just the look on his face, just the sobering reality of life and how fragile he is. You ever have one of those moments? I remember one time I was driving back from Fredericton. It was Christmas, probably 2011. And my daughter would have been not quite three and my son was not quite one. And we had spent a couple days in Fredericton with my parents. And you know, you know, like it is when you have little kids, it's all day presents, all day sugars, all night awake, and then do it again the next day, right? And so we're driving back to St. John and my wife and my two kids have both fallen asleep and I'm tired and the Red Bull's not helping. And I'm driving back and we're like somewhere around Wellsford. And like, it's just boring and it's just trees and I, the drone of the car and you know the story and I start to doze and does, don't I, I just, the, the, the briefest second my eyes closed and I felt the car go off onto the shoulder and start to rumble and I opened my eyes and pulled it back on just in time before we careened off around a corner. And it was one of those like rushing moments of the value of my, my babies and my wife and what am I doing? And it was, like, it was a sobering moment. Y'all, I drove like Ned Flanders the rest of the way. Like I like was dadding at an all-time level that day. Like, never again will I take you for granted, right? It was like, you have a Scrooge on Christmas Day given a second chance. You boy, right? Like, that's, that's what happens when you have these moments of, like, encounter with a higher power. And I tell you this story, and I tell you that analogy to kind of set up a framework for what we need to do as we get talking about our fresh start. We are in a season and a series we're calling Fresh Start, but I have a conviction, and that is this. If we're going to have a fresh start, it's going to begin with coming awake to a higher reality. 
that it actually fresh starts and new beginnings and new life is connected to awakening. And as we journey through this month of January, we're calling it Fresh Start, where we're trying to like come out of just the last 22 months. And so many, so many of us are feeling numb and frustrated and exhausted and tired and depleted and desperate and despairing and all the things. And we're just not at our best. And we're trying to figure out ways in which to get back on track and get ourselves in a better space. And we're going to use all the tools, even in the next coming weeks, we're going to talk about some different ways that we can bring freshness and new life into us, some habits and things that we can do, some disciplines and that kind of thing. But we can do all of those things. You know, you can start the 21-day fast tomorrow, which I encourage you to do. You can join the marriage course that we're going to be doing at the end of the month. You can do all those things. But if we don't get an awakening and a fresh vision, it's all for naught. Today is not about what we need to do so much and more about what we need to see. That fresh starts are ultimately connected to our vision. Here's the big idea. I'm going to give it to you up front, and we're going to do some work on trying to get a fresh vision. But the idea is this, that life and refreshing and renewal and new beginnings, restoration, it all begins with coming to grips with the supreme reality of God and our hopeless, helpless nature without him. To the degree, let me say it like this, to the degree that we see Jesus rightly is the degree that you will experience fulfilling real life. No more, no less. To the degree that we see Jesus for who he is will be the degree of our life we live. Fresh starts and fresh lives start with a fresh vision. I want to talk for a couple minutes about fresh vision. One of my favorite authors and Christian thinkers is a man named A.W. Tozer. He's since passed. I prefer to read uh, dead guys, generally speaking. And, and uh, Tozer is just a legend, one of my heroes. And he has a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's one of my all-time most important books that I read on the regular. And in it, he's describing the importance of our vision. Look what he says. He says, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous fact about a man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What's he saying? He's saying that what you think God to be like, or maybe, maybe someone's watching today online and like, you're actually an atheist. You don't even believe a, there is a God. Or you, you're agnostic. You're like, I don't know. In any case, whatever you believe to be the highest power in the universe, your life by some simple hidden secret law of the soul will run on those tracks you will operate within the paradigm and framework of your vision of God or your version of God. So if you believe there is no God, I can assure you right now, your life is following choices and values that go according to your vision or version of existence where there is no God. Uh, if, you, if you're a person who's like, I don't know, I'm an agnostic. If you're agnostic, your life is going to reflect the life of someone who doesn't know if there is a God. 
If you're, uh, if you're a person who believes that God, your vision or concept of God is that God is a righteous judge and I've got to convince them that I'm a good person, then you're going to live according to a vision or version of God that he is a judge and you need to convince him that you're a good person. If you believe that God is some vindictive tyrant that needs to be appeased, you're going to live a life like God is a vindictive tyrant that needs to be appeased. Whatever the high vision of God is in your mind or your heart of hearts, you are living according to that law. It's gravitational. You can't overwhelm it. You can't undermine it. It is gravitational. It is compulsive. It is a secret law of the soul that causes us to move toward our mental image of God. Now, why is that so important? It's important because Tozer is basically saying, and he goes on in his book to say, if your vision of God does not correspond with who God actually is, destruction is ultimately the end game that your idea of God corresponds rightly with who God actually is. Otherwise, you are like a person driving down the highway of life, blissfully unaware of the reality of God that could swallow you up at any given moment. It's, this, is the, this is the picture we get in the Bible, that, that you, ha- you see this kind of cycle unfold that has to do with how people conceive God and the byproduct of not seeing God rightly. If you, if you read the first two chapters of the Bible, you'll see that God made everything. And in the beginning, human beings were in right relationship with God. They saw God clearly. There was a distinct reality or a distinct concept of God in their mind. And they were devoted. Let me, let me just kind of paint this picture for us. This, this is the the biblical cycle that we see throughout the Bible. You see people who are devoted to God and there's this definition. They know who God is and what is not God and they have it in its rightful place. But what happens is you start to see deception and distortion creep into the picture. What do I mean by that? Don't mind my writing that says deception. If you read Genesis chapter 3, and this is the same cycle, it does itself all through the Bible, you see it. If you read Genesis chapter 3, what happens? It tells us that the serpent comes in, and he doesn't make the people do anything wrong. He attacks them by what? By deceiving them about the nature of God. If you are reading the Bible in one year plan, which so many of you are, it's so exciting, you would have heard the quote from Nicky Gumbel where he said, before Adam and Eve swallowed the fruit, they swallowed a lie about God. And that's ultimately what the devil tries to do. He doesn't have to make you do anything. He just wants to convince you that God is something other than he is because you're going to live according to that vision. And the moment that you have a vision of God that is not God, your life is now on the path of destruction. And that's what you see over and over in the scripture. You see this deception and this distortion, which leads to defiance and disobedience. That says defiance. And and then... What happens is it moves to destruction and devastation. You see sin and, and pain enter the picture. You see this cycle itself all through the scripture. You see Genesis 4 to 6, the increase of sin and destruction and pain and death and murder and all these things. And then what do you see in Genesis 6? God brings things back to rightness. He calls Noah and he spares him and he resets things with a man who sees God rightly. But you see the cycle happen again. People lose sight of God. And you see this happen over and over again. You see it in the book of Exodus. You see it in the book of Kings. You see it in the book of judges. In judges, you see it repeatedly. 
It says that in those days there was no king and the people forgot the Lord their God and did what was right in their own eyes. And destruction ensued. But then the Bible speaks of this word repentance. And repent has to do with vision. Uh, The Greek actually means look again. To look again, to see what you weren't seeing, to turn in a right direction. That's ultimately what repentance is. And so you see this cycle happen, and after people repent, they get back into right relationship with God. And it brings devotion, definition, and real life. You see this cycle. And so I I illustrate that to tell you this. If you are going to see new life and refreshing and like vitality enter into your world in 2022, ultimately what you need is not better strategies. You need a better vision. Let me say that again. If you want to see your life transformed, you want to become better, you want to become more healthy, you want to become more holy, more happy, all those things, more hope-filled, more non-anxious, more at peace, you don't need better strategies first. You need better vision. You need to see God as he is because your life will follow that track. So our prayer today and my prayer for us in, in 2022 is not, you know, God, help me get my act together. Or God, help me get more disciplined. Or God, help me sin less. Or help me quit that. Or help me start doing that. Or help me give up this. Or lose weight. Or stop that. Or lose that. It's none of those things. The prayer that will change everything is, God, let me see you in a way that I haven't seen you yet. That will change everything. If we see God as he is, and so I want to just, we're going to end here in a minute and we're going to pray that God opens our eyes, but I want us to get looking in the right direction. And, you know, we need a revelation. How do we, how do we see what we can't see? It's not like a blind person can say, I'm unblind. How do we see what we haven't seen? Well, God has given us tools to do that. His spirit right now is working to open our eyes. And he's given us the word of God, which is the revelation of God. And it speaks and points and shows us things that we can't see in and of ourselves. So I want to just take a few minutes and I want to look at a vision of God and already start working toward this 2022 prayer of God. Let me see you. Let us see you fresh, new, and rightly. And it's going to help us see what we haven't seen. So I want us to talk about three quick things. I'm going to give you three things we have to see according to Isaiah 6 and the vision that Isaiah got. Now, open your Bible, open your notes. If you're watching online, you know, open another window where you can keep Isaiah 6 open. We're going to study it. Can we nerd out on the Bible for a few minutes? Are you with me? We're going to circle stuff. It's going to be official. Let's Isaiah 6, though, there's a bunch of places we could go to see what it looks like to have a vision of God. But Isaiah 6 is one of the most vivid. And so I want to look at that today. But I'll give you my first point and then we'll break it down. Here's th- one of three things we need to see about God if we're going to be reset and we're going to see new life. And the first is this. We have to get a fresh vision. First and foremost, we need a rumble strip moment where we are humbled and reminded that God is God and we are not. And we have to get a fresh vision of God's glory and grandeur. We have to see his greatness and be humbled. A revelation of the real Jesus, of, the, of real God, 
begins with seeing his glory, his greatness, and our humility. Let's break down the passage. It says Isaiah had a vision of God. He saw the Lord, it says. And it was, in the, it was the year that King Uzziah died. I wish I had more time to break that down about the life of Uzziah. Maybe we'll preach a message on it sometime. But in a nutshell, Uzziah was one of the most successful and prosperous kings in Israel's history. And from a humanistic standpoint, he was brilliant. He was a war hero, a war leader. He was an economic mastermind. He was a strategic mastermind. He was a very gifted individual, but he got proud. And in the end of his life, it tells us that he actually went into the temple and completely desecrated the temple and said, I'm going to worship how I want. I don't care about you priests. I don't care about this. I'm going to do it my way. And he was stricken with leprosy and lived the rest of his days in isolation. And his life is a picture of human pride and being humbled. That's ultimately what the life of Uzziah is. And it's on the heels of this proud king, human pride, Human progress, all that stuff. It's on the heels of the death of that. That is not inconsequential. That he saw, I saw, Isaiah the prophet, I saw the Lord. Now let's break down the word Lord. The word Lord here is the Hebrew word Adonai. I'll try to write neatly because it's God's name. The word Adonai. And the word Adonai means the Lord Most High. It's, there's a fun term in the Greek called the Tetragrammaton. It's a fun word. It sounds like a transformer. The, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord Most High, the Adonai. It's the, it's the highest name that they could ascribe to the Lord. It's the most holy, reverent, lofty name for God that there is. It's, it's uh, another, another, another translation for it would be like the Lord, Lord, Lord. Like you, you've heard of lords and he's the Lord of that and he's the Lord of that. Like the, the Lord, I saw the Lord Adonai. And then it says the Lord, I saw the Lord. So Adonai, stay with me. And he was high and exalted. What does the word exalted mean? Lifted up, high. So if you're, if you're thinking that this sounds redundant, you are right. I saw the Lord Most High, high and higher still. You, you catching the language? I saw the Lord Most High and he was high and lifted up. Like, in other words, maybe, I don't know how to, how to help us understand this more. Like, have you ever had a mind bend moment where like your brain just goes, <laughs> yes, you have. I can tell by your laughter. Like if you're, maybe you're watching YouTube or some discovery documentary that shows the expanse of the universe. Any, anybody ever watch some of that stuff where it's like it does the scale of the universe and it shows like here's earth and earth is so massive and you're just this little tiny mosquito on the planet earth is your life. And then it zooms out and it shows that earth in the realm of the solar system is quite small and it shows that it can fit, you can fit a hundred million or sorry, a million Earths inside of our sun. The, the sun is a million times bigger than this big planet you and I live on. Like that starts to bend your mind. Then you zoom out more and it shows that our sun is one sun or one star of a hundred million suns inside the Milky Way. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> and then you start to think, and somehow... You can stand outside at night and look up and see the Milky Way 
And then this blows your mind. You're in it. (laughs) Doesn't that like just make your head tilt? Like just, you can't fathom it. And then you zoom out more and you realize that our galaxy is one galaxy of an estimated 100 million other galaxies, which is an estimated 4% of the known universe. It just becomes overwhelming, doesn't it? That's what this is scraping at. This Lord, Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 40 that that God measures the heavens and holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Like the Lord has created all of that. The expanse of the universe, the nebulas, the stars, the the black holes, the the, the dwarf planet, the dwarf planet, planets or the dwarf suns. I don't know. All of that science stuff. (laughs) It's all within the realm of God's hands. This is the Lord that he he saw the Lord high and exalted. I could geek out there all day, but let's, let's keep moving. And he was seated on a throne, seated on a throne. I love this. Now let's just meditate on this and get a vision for God. So God is in this expanse all by himself. Like he is in a category all by himself. Everything that was made and has its being came from the breath of his hand. It came through his voice. He said it and it happened. And then it says he was seated on a throne. Now what is that speaking of? The fact that he was seated on the throne. Well, it speaks to God's let me use this word, isness, like that he is and how he is. He's seated, meaning there's nothing pending. Uh, there's nothing demanding his attention. He doesn't have to get to those papers or sign those documents or figure this out. Like he's seated, he's at rest, he's done. He is, he has been, he ever will be. He's seated. He's seated. He's not deliberating. He's not trying to figure things out. He's not worried. He's not chewing his nails. He's not binging on Netflix. There's, there's nothing he needs to do or tend to. He is seated and he's seated on a throne, which speaks of his rule. His, the theological term is sovereignty. There's, there's nothing that he needs. There's nothing that he can't do. That's what it's speaking of. There's, there's the idea of the fact that God is self-sufficient. The fact that he's seated means that he doesn't need anything. Nothing needs tending to. He has no deficiencies. There's no lack in him. He is all in and of himself. I know it's starting to bend your mind, but just let your spirit, let your mind and your imagination go there Seated on the throne would mean he's all-powerful. There's a theological term, omnipotent. There's, there's, he's all-powerful. And I know you and I think of, oh, how powerful is all-powerful? There's no category. Like, let me say it like this. God doesn't have power. God is power. Right? Like, you and I think that guy's strong. Or the Hoover Dam is, is powerful. Or electricity is powerful. That there's a measurement of that capacity. God doesn't have capacity. He is power. He's seated on the throne, meaning, meaning he's self-existent, meaning he's omniscient, omniscient. Sorry, He knows everything. I love this quote from Tozer. Tozer says, God never discovers anything. Think about that. 
God's not surprised by the things that surprise you. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything. He's omniscient. He's self-existent, uncreated. He didn't start and he has no end. He's a big God. Seated on a throne means he's immutable. What's immutable? It means he doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about that for a minute. Same God today as he was yesterday. He'll be the same God tomorrow. He was the same when he created Adam. He was the same when he raised up Noah. He was the same when he called Abraham. He was the same when he called Moses. He was the same when he called David. He was the same when he called Isaiah. He was the same with Malachi and Micah. He was the same when he revealed himself in Jesus. He was the same when Paul started the churches. He was the same in the dark ages. He's the same at the Reformation. He was the same in the year 2000 and Y2K. He was the same in 2020. He's the same today and he'll be the same tomorrow. He doesn't change. I love that. I need a God who doesn't change. I know sometimes we'd like God to be malleable, mold around how we think things should, should go. I assure you the best thing in the world is that there is a God who is unchanging. The sands of time and culture shift and change, but God does not change. Let's keep going. I could nerd out on that all, all day. I want to get us out of here. And it says, uh, so I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. Are you still with me? Okay. And the train of his robe, the train of his robe, let's talk about that, filled the temple. The train of, the ro- train of his robe filled the temple. What, is the, what does his robe represent? Now for us, that doesn't really mean anything. In that culture, in those days, that vision, a robe and the size of one's robe represented how splendid they were. It was about their majesty or their glory. And so when he says the train of his robes, robe filled the temple, he's saying that there's this temple that could not contain his splendor and glory. Later, the, the seraphim say the whole earth is filled with his glory. In other words, this vision tells us something about the glory of God, and that is this, that it's endless. It's boundless. There is no end to the glory and beauty, and magnificence, and splendor, and grandeur of God. There's no end to it. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, now let's watch this where this shifts. The vision goes into what's happening around the throne. So he sees the Lord, and then it says above him, so hovering above the throne were these two created beings, these angelic beings called seraphim. Now, we don't have a lot of time to dive into that. You can, there's a couple other visions in the scripture of seraphim, but basically what we know about seraphim is they are these special, called burning ones, these, these messengers that, that are closest to the throne that do God's business. And they, they, they are closest to the Lord. And it says the seraphim were there, and then it describes them, and it's mildly terrifying. Each of them had six wings, and with two wings, they covered their faces. So already start to notice this God that he saw is so holy that these holy beings can't even look. And then it says with two, they covered their feet. His presence is so sanct, to use that word so exclusive and so holy, they can't put their feet on the same ground that he exists on. 
And with two, they were flying. So that was keeping their feet off the ground. And it says, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. This is a triple, like a triple positive. This is triple inflection. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Adonai. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Adonai, almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then uh, uh, this, part, this start, part starts to shake me a little bit. It says, at the sound of whose voices? At the sound of their voices, the seraphim. So these aren't like wimpy angels. They're terrifying, powerful, angelic beings. And at the sound of their voices saying, holy, 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 the, it says the, the, vo- the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shook and it was filled with smoke. So just think about this for a minute. It's trying to give you a, a way to sort of triangulate the holiness of God. That these holy beings are overwhelmed and infatuated and intimidated by, what, by the presence of the Almighty. Now, if one of these seraphim just appeared here before us, none of us today would say, oh, neat. <laughs> what would we do? You would hit the deck. You would lay low and crawl out of here like an army crawl, like you were storming the beach of Normandy. You would get out of here. You'd be terrified. I would be terrified. And these beings that are so terrifying are, are whole in holy, reverent awe of God. So just get a grip on that for a minute of how in some ways dreadful the holiness of God is when you start to realize that, you know what, I'm not like him. That there is infinity between his worth and who I am, between his holiness and what I am and what I've done, between the works that he's done and what I've done, that we are not congruent. And that's what you see happen with Isaiah. Look what happens. He says, he doesn't say, wow, this is cool. It's great to be here. This is the coolest day of my life. What does he say? He says, woe to me. Woe is me. Woe, destruction. Ah, ruin. For I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean people and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. We have got to get a real vision of the Lord Almighty. We have got to recapture the holiness of God, the fear of God. If it doesn't start with God is holy, if your vision or version of God doesn't start with, well, God is God and he gets to be God all alone and I have no business calling that into question. If it doesn't start with reverent fear, it is not this God. And so anytime that you and I are tempted to be flippant or trite, when we talk about God, when we think about God, when we act according to our version of God, if it doesn't cause us to be humbled, it is not the real God. God Almighty humbles and terrifies every person. Like if we could comb the scriptures, every person that has a vision of God are terrified. Like Daniel fell down as though dead. Isaiah, woe is me, I am ruined. You see a Peter in the boat with Jesus when he realizes who Jesus is. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, let's go catch more fish. What does he say? He says, Jesus, I can't be near you. Get away from me. You see John in Revelation chapter one when he has the vision of the risen Christ. John who'd spent 30 or spent three years living with Jesus and the rest of his life following him. He has a vision of Jesus that 
doesn't cause him to get up and hug his old friend. He says, I fell down as though dead. That's, that's this God. There is a reverent humbling. It should swallow us whole when we think of who this God is. It should be like fresh water dousing our soul, waking us up to the fact that greater than our plans and purposes and priorities and greater than the politicians and powers and principalities and greater than all the things of heaven and earth, this God stands alone. To be humbled by him. It's a humbling problem, this God that was presented to us in the scripture. Tozer says it like this. He says, all the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God, that he is what he is like and what we as moral beings are to do about him. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Put all your problems in that category. For he sees that at once that, sees at once that these have to do with matters which at most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one on another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey him perfectly and to worship him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has done none of these things, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. Whoa! Oh, that we would see God's glory again in a way that humbles us. That humbles us. Because here's why. God is attracted to our humility. He's drawn to it. Look what happens next. Here, I'll give you my next point and then we'll break it down in the scripture. We have to get a fresh vision of God's, God's greatness, his glory. And then number two, we gotta get fresh vision of God's grace to see his goodness anew and be healed by it. Look what happens in the story, in the vision. Isaiah cries out, woe to me, I, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He finally accepts reality of his own limitation. And then what happens? It says one of the seraphim, so one of these messengers, one of these burning ones, flew to me, so came to me from the throne of heaven down to the heap of humanity that is Isaiah. So this should already, those of you who know the gospel, this should already be putting on indicator lights on your dashboard. The seraphim flew to me, came to me. We just celebrated the incarnation. What is that about? God coming in flesh to earth. And he came to me with a live coal, a living, living coal, a living fire. John the Baptist once said, the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In his hand, which he had taken with the tongs, this instrument, from the altar. And then with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for or paid for. What's it talking about? 
This is a prophetic vision of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, y'all. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he sent his only son, a burning one from the very majesty of heaven that to come and to be among us, to come into that heap of humanity of sin and death and human selfishness and pride to walk straight in and start touching people. I love that picture of that, the, the, the coal as it touched Isaiah, it cleansed him. I wish we had time to study the scripture a little more today. You could see where Jesus goes and he touches the unclean, touches lepers and blind and all the things like, he touches things that were broken and unclean. And in our world, the rules of physics and the rules of virology and the rules of cleanliness is usually when something clean touches what is dirty, the clean thing becomes dirty. But in the case of the gospel, in the case of Jesus, what happens is the clean touches the unclean. Instead of the clean becoming unclean, the unclean becomes clean said that right. (laughs) Jesus is the cleansing ember of God that has come to this earth to touch your life in the heap of humble humanity to touch us. I love that picture in Revelation 2 or or in Revelation 1 where John has the vision of the risen Christ. It says, I fell down at his feet as though dead. And then again, you see the same cycle happen. Jesus speaks to him and says, fear not. And it says, he reached down and touched me. When was the last time you just let the touch of God's grace hit you in the heart? When was the last time you were reminded? You were, you were blown away. You had a fresh vision of the amazing grace of God. It's like the song, The Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. God, teach our heart to fear you again, to, to put you in your rightful place, to not be flippant, to be humbled. And then it was grace, my fear. Do you know it? Relieved. I have seen the Lord and turns out he loves me and he's for me. And he's good, not just kind of good, fully good, so good that he would extend himself at his own expense to touch the wretchedness of my life and raise me up into something altogether different. To actually touch me with his glory and goodness and transform me into something I could never be in and of myself. To touch what was unclean and make it clean. Have you been blown away by the grace and goodness of God lately? If you haven't, It's probably not because you don't appreciate grace or that God is merciful. It's probably because you haven't seen God as great enough. One of the things I've learned is this. We can't grasp the deeper depths of God's goodness until we see the higher heights of his greatness. Grace isn't amazing until you know that God is amazing. Like the mercy, the fact that God, like for Isaiah, why does God even care about this little pipsqueak that's having a hard day? Why does the Lord Adonai, high and exalted, why does he even, like David, who am I that you're even mindful of me? Let alone that you would extend yourself and spend yourself to bring me to life, to pay my debt, to bear my shame, to take my death upon yourself should blow you away. God, help us not lose sight of the amazing grace given to us in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
God touches us with grace and mercy. And then what happens is when we get overwhelmed and touched by the healing hand of God's goodness, when we, when we see the Lord and we find out that he's good, what happens is our lives get reset. They get aligned. Like when you have a vision of the holiness of God and then the mystery of the fact that God is for you, not against you, lands, it brings everything into alignment to where you now live a life without fear. Because like Paul said, if God, that God, the Lord most high, if the one that like the angels shake and in, in whose presence the angels fear to tread, if that God is for me, who can be against me? What can be against me? If that God would give us his son to help us in our humbled, wretched state of humanity, if that God loves me, if I have a revelation that that God loves me, it starts to cast out all fear. That's what John was talking about. The perfect love of the Father casts out all fear. When you realize he loves you, you can face whatever comes because I have already seen the Lord and I found out that he's good. This is what you see happen. This is the third thing you need to see. We need to get a fresh vision of God's goals. See his purpose and be blessed that God, let me say it like this, see that God is for you. He's for you, not against you. He knows the plans he has for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future. That's not just something we put on a coffee mug. That is the word of the Lord given to us, fulfilled by Jesus. That promise belongs to us if we will take hold of it. The best is yet to come in him. See his purpose and walk in his blessing. Look how, look how this vision ends. And we're probably going to look at this again and then as the weeks progress. But it says, he took away my sins, my sins were atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord. So this is the first time we hear the voice of the Lord. And it says, God said, whom will I send? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. I love it. I just, for some reason, I picture Isaiah like after being touched by the holy hand of grace of God and being raised up, he hears that voice and he's like, ooh, 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 me, me, me. He's like the only one there, you know? It's like, but I love that. I love that vision. And, and it always strikes me because he doesn't say, okay, God, where are we going? What would you have me do? Is there a retirement plan? Do I have a pension? Do you, is there medical benefits? Are we, what's the salary? He didn't, didn't ask any, he didn't need to know. And in fact, after he volunteers, God says, I'm sending you to a rough go here for a bit, but it's going to give birth to the Messiah. It's going to be awesome. But he doesn't ask why. Because he had seen the Lord, found out he was good, and that freed him up to blindly face the future. He'd seen all he needed to see. Just, do you see? He saw the Lord, saw that he was good, and that allowed him to blindly face tomorrow. 
Someone needs to be reminded of that. I just, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what will come. All I know is this, that God is great and he is good and he is for you and that's enough. Just let it sit. God is great and God is good and he is for you and that's all you need to know. If that God is for you, who can be against you? What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Can trouble or famine or hardship or nakedness or sword or angels or demons or life or death? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He actually is causing all things to come together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If God did not withhold his own son, how much more also along with him will he not give us all things? Just breathe it in. See him high and lifted up. See yourself humbled. Like, let me just say this. Like, you're not going to hear this when you turn on the TV or read self-help. See the wretch that you are. That's not very nice. No, but it's true. We have to see our wretchedness and our nakedness and then see the amazing grace of God that in that he comes to you and touches you and heals you and accepts you and clothes you with righteousness and calls you his own and gives you an inheritance and sets your feet on the right path and he will bring you from glory to ever increasing glory. How incredible is that? Here's my prayer for us as we wrap up. Paul prayed this, and I want us to just kind of pray this and let this settle. Ephesians, Paul said this. He said, he's talking to this church that he planted in Ephesus. And he said, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here it is, verse 17. I keep asking. Like he's praying this consistently. And this is what I want us to do. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would see so that you may do better, work harder, strive, accomplish great things. No, so that you may say it with me. Know him better. That's everything. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He says, I want you to know that. That Power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. That's, that's the prayer, that we would see who he is, that we're his, that he's for us, and nothing can come against us. I want to pray. Would you stand to your feet? Here's what I want to pray. As we start, I want to encourage you to join our 21-day fast, but as we start into this season of fresh start, I'm praying this. I'm going to just pray in just a minute, but I want to read these out to you before I pray them over to us. These are, maybe take a screenshot of this and, and just let's make this our prayer. Like, let's keep asking this like Paul had been. 
But here's what I'm praying. Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord Jesus, reveal to me more of your greatness. Let me see you, not as Jesus is my homeboy or some graphic tee or some bobblehead. Let me see you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Humble me, make me reverent. Let the fear of the Lord take root. Second prayer, gracious Jesus. Reveal to me more of your goodness. Living Jesus, help me see that you are the good life. I wanna pray this over us as we wrap up. Let's pray. Maybe just place your hand over your heart, the eye of your heart. Just as a prophetic act. God, if we just, I pray the prayer over King's Church, Lord, those who are here in the room at one of the locations or the many watching online today. I pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see an invisible God Visible, not visible to the naked eye, but the spirit can see. Help us see, God. Lord Jesus, help us see your greatness. Humble us, God. Help us to not treat you as flippant or as an afterthought. Help us put you, if you really are Lord, like you said, if, I'm, if you call me Lord, why do you not do what I say? Help us to treat you and see you as Lord. Gracious Jesus, help us see that you are Lord and you are good and you're for us and you invite us to come that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and that God, because you are great and because you are good, you have set us on the good life. Jesus, you said, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. Help us trust that the good life is found in you. We pray this. In the name of the Lord Most High, in the name of our King Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.